0: You know, people are were, people were always throwing around this idea that, you know, um, there might be some potential connection between the gut and the brain. You know, you've heard the saying, you know, I have a gut feeling. Where, where do you think that came from? I have a gut feeling. Because it's something in the gut that's telling you about some feeling, right? Feeling is coming from the brain.
1: Into this week's episode of 10 Thoughts Countdown to the Longest Day. I'm your host, Anushka Nori. We are fortunate to have Dr. Sungram Sasodia as our guest speaker for this episode. We'll get to learn more about his research in Alzheimer's, along with some wise advice for those looking to get involved in the field of research. Again, a huge thank you to Dr. Sasodia for both his contributions to the field of Alzheimer's research and for his support in our podcast series. Our guest speaker today is Dr. Sundgram Sasodia, who is the Thomas Reynolds Senior Family Professor of Neurosciences at the University of Chicago Center for Molecular Neurobiology. Dr. Sasodia is a leading expert on the biology of Alzheimer's disease. Over the past 20 years, his research lab has worked to uncover the cellular and molecular underpinnings of Alzheimer's, focusing on the APP, or amyloid precursor protein, which we discussed in our previous episode. Of his many accomplishments, Dr. Sosodia was recently awarded a more than $2.3 million grant from Good Ventures, as well as the UChicago DFI Multidisciplinary Research Grant to study the role of gut and brain microbiome in Alzheimer's. Um, Dr. Sosodia, thank you for being with us here today.
0: It's my pleasure.
1: Okay, let's jump right into the questions. Dr. Sosodia, can you give our listeners an overview of the research you conduct in your lab?
0: so as I said I've been working in this field for well actually 33 years now um but um so I'm, I'm I'm trained as a molecular biologist and biochemist um actually never took a neurobiology course in my life um did not know what neurons were what the brain was for almost in my entire career and as an undergraduate so I was a uh, but I was very really interested in so sort of molecular mechanisms of how genes get transcribed and processed and blah blah blah. And I was introduced to the field uh, when I was a postdoc at Johns Hopkins um, to a group that worked on Alzheimer's disease and other neurodegenerative diseases. And the problem then was, like 1997, 1998, they uh, had no idea what was going on. And it's kind of like PSP; they really don't know what's going on. And all they had was pathology that had clinical symptoms. They didn't know how to figure out what this pathology was about. So, with my background expertise in molecular biology and gene cloning and protein biochemistry, uh, I joined this group and I said, I know, I think I can try to figure this out. Um, and uh, so they gave me a chance to do it. And uh, so there was the cloning of the APP gene and, for, and, and subsequently the presynolin genes. Uh, which are all involved in early onset uh, dominant forms of disease. That means that if you mother or father had Alzheimer's disease and you inherit that, and you inherited a specific mutation in AP or presenilins, you are going to get the gene. It's like it's it's fully what's called penetrant. That you you're you're going to get the disease. There's no way to get around it. So, I thought that was really the hook. That was what I needed to really begin to understand the the mechanism of disease, right? Because once you have these dominant mutations, uh, so we're talking about a single base pair change in 3 billion base pairs, and you get Alzheimer's disease. I think that's pretty remarkable. And so, I said, that's that's really telling me what what I need to look. I got to. So, we have. A lot of information clinical and pathology information but now it really tells me where to focus right uh, and and so what we really have focused on is is the the biology of uh, of a, of a beta a beta is a, a small protein that that deposits in the plaques and the brains of patients with Alzheimer's disease but also in normal human beings I mean it's probably happening in me as we speak <laughs> uh, but it's happening all the time but it's also is made and it's clear it's made this clear. So these plaques are really kind of the very earliest sort of features that we, we know about the disease. And so the question is, was in this plaques and it's it a small peptide. And I have been trying to focus on the biology of this peptide. How does how does it get there? What are the enzymes needed to create this peptide to to basically chop up a larger protein into a in, into this one part, which is called a beta, which deposits in the brain. Why does that happen? Um, what's evolutionarily important? Why why evolutionarily did that happen? We don't know, but it happened. So uh, I've been interested in, in ways of trying to modify this pathology, not using drugs or inhibitors of this enzyme or that enzyme and blah, blah, blah. I just want to use basic common sense kind of approaches. And the first thing that we did, and we published this in 2005 in, in Cell, was showing that that uh, exercise can have a significant effect on attenuating this pathology. We now know from human studies for years and years and years Your retrospective and prospective studies yeah you know exercise yeah, does play a very important role in reducing the the the, uh, the risk for dementia of course for heart, cardiovascular disease and, and many other age-associated conditions but we know that it really has an impact on and we know from the most experiments where we have a complete control situation where they're eating the same food they just in In some animals that are in this, what's called an enriched environment, which has running wheels and play toys, those, those animals, I mean, they're eating the same food, the light the lights go on the same time goes off the same time. The only thing that's different is the environment. And that environment has a huge impact and the running wheel has the biggest impact. So, and that, what that does is attenuates, significantly reduces the level of this pathology and these mice get better. Okay. Common sense. So over the last five years, four years, I had another thought um, because I had, you know, we were doing some really interesting experiments, not in this particular realm and other aspects of the brain of brain biology. Um, And I had uh, a question, you know, people were people always throwing around this idea that, you know, um, there might be some potential connection between the gut and the brain. You know, you've heard the saying, you know, I have a gut feeling. Where, Where do you think that came from? That have a gut feeling, because it's something in the gut that's telling you about some feeling, right? Feeling is coming from the brain, and so, uh, and in fact, uh, Hippocrates in 325 BC was like the you know the Hippocratic oath, which all medical doctors have to take when they finish medical school. He said all diseases begin in the gut. So I said, you know what? It's probably right. So we asked the question whether we interfere. And so what's, in the, what's the gut made of? Gut is obviously a lot of intestines, human cells and, and different tissues and different organs, but there's a lot of bacteria. And that's called the microbiome, the gut microbiome. Of course, there's a microbiome in your skin in your in every single, you know, in this uh, oral microbiome, this microbiome is all the place. But the gut microbiome, uh, the cells there, it's been estimated there's many bacterial cells in your gut as all the cells in the human body, perhaps a little bit more. So, what are they doing there? Well, they're not just there to to digest your food and make metabolites which your body needs for normal physiology, but they're doing a lot of things, and uh, more than more than that. And the question is then. If you affect the types of bacteria in the gut, these animals, these, these are transgenic animals now that we and many other laboratories have developed over the years, they developed a pathology in the brain and uh, that looks kind of like Alzheimer's disease, these amyloid plaques. So by just changing the composition of bacteria, just by giving them antibiotics, when they're pups, they're still with their mother, they're still being feeding, they're being nurtured by their mother. We give these pups very high dose of antibodies. And what happens is that, and, and then you put them in regular drinking water for like three or four or five, six months, whatever. And then you sacrifice them when you know the pathology develops. What you find is there's a significant reduction in this pathology. What we find is that actually we haven't killed all the bacteria in the gut. The composition of bacteria changes. So the types of bacteria that are present in the gut um, as we examine the feces the cecum the you know the gut, gut contents they are changed the types of bacteria so it's kind of a correlation right it's that you have this correlation that this is reduced pathology in the brain changes in gut bacteria so what's the connection we don't know what the connection is but i can tell you is that all we've seen what i've just told you about only happens in male animals not in female animals so that's a huge surprise uh hasn't really hasn't been reported in the literature uh that but we know from human condition there is a sex-specific bias for Alzheimer's disease women are much are, uh, at high risk for Alzheimer's disease women who inherit a specific gene called ApoE4 which is a major risk factor for late Alzheimer's disease women who acquire uh, inherit an E4 allele from the mom and dad they usually are diagnosed five years before men who have an E4 allele, and they progress much more rapidly. So we know that this is, there's a, a risk for, for women to get Alzheimer's disease. And so maybe that's some, maybe we're learning something from this experiment, right? that by changing the microbiome, you have an effect in males, but not in females. Is that the explanation? What we know is that after we treat animals with these, with these antibiotics, the gut microbiome in males and female animals is quite different.
1: Wow, that's incredible! It's
0: crazy. They start with the same. They start with the same bacteria, but they, they, but they, but at the end of the experiment, say three months or five months, whatever later, they have different microbiomes. So, the, you know, the question is, what's driving? Is that sex hormones, for example? I don't know. I have no idea. Although I don't know what the trigger is. I don't know what the what the activating molecules are. obviously what we're spending all this money trying to do and research is that so there are cells in the brain called microglia so microglia are an immune cell it's it's related to all peripheral myeloid cells cells called macrophages and monocytes and b and t cells they all came from the same place same lineage. Except early in development, and we're talking about, let's say, a mouse gestation time is about uh, you know, 18, 18, 19 days. These cells get into the brain at about seven, 9 or 10 days of age, or, uh, when they're small embryos. They get there, and they stay there. These cells, what they do, what their importance is, is that they're involved in, during development, they play a very important role, they, they prune synapses. So, so synapses are those, the talking points between, between neurons, right? Mm-hmm. So, so during development, these, these synapses are super plastic. They like, they move around because cells are trying to find connections, right? This is, a lot of things are happening. I mean, it's happening. You're having millions of cells being born a day and they have to make the right connections. Sometimes the connections don't happen right these cells are over there to take care of this debris. They just basically, they what's called prune synapses. And they also take care of the cells that are dying because they can make synapses. Okay, so that's the role of these cells during development. It turns out these cells also have a very important role in the, in the aging brain. And they take care of debris that goes up in the brain, such as amyloid, like these plaques. So we know that if you look at a plaque, and you look for these cells, they're all like surrounding these plaques. They're like going after it. They can actually see a piece of amyloid inside these cells. So that's their that's their role. I mean, one of the principal roles during age, turns out that uh, these cells um, in male animals are working continuously in female animals. They're not doing anything. They like, they're shut off. They shut off all the genes that are involved in this process of eating. Who knows why? But that's, it's, that's the way it is.
1: Yeah, that's insane. Um, sex
0: is, that's it. And, that, and that's basically what we, that's how we explain what happens in the brain, why females don't see any change in this pathology. Well, males, you see it. That's, it's, but, and we're not the first to discover that there's a sex specific uh, biology of these microglial cells. That's been reported by several other groups. Including your own, but several. So it's not a un, un, unique uh, thing finding for our lab. There clearly is a sex-specific difference. So that's something we're really, obviously, very interested in. Right? It speaks to your grandma.
1: From your response, research seems to be a very challenging area. Um, yeah. Across your decades as a scientist and an investigator studying Alzheimer's, have you encountered any challenges? And if so, how did you overcome them?
0: Uh, um, You know, it it is, it's super challenging because, um, you know, you have to run a lab, uh, which means you have to pay people. Uh, We have a lot of mice and mice cost a lot of money. I mean, this is basically, you're basically paying the cost for mice living in a cage. Like you would, like if you were staying at the Ritz Carlton or something like that, I mean, it's like a ridiculous amount of money that we pay for this. So it's all very expensive. I mean, it's, you know, I, I I don't know exactly what my annual budget is. It's probably a couple of million bucks. But I have to raise that money. I mean, money doesn't just sort of fall out of the air. Mm-hmm. Soft grants, right? And, and to private foundations, to NIH, uh, which is a major center for getting funding. Or well, these private foundations like like you mentioned, uh Good Ventures Foundation. Um good was a foundation that was started by some guys in silicon valley and uh, they are interested in funding sort of novel new that's basically entrepreneur they're entrepreneurs right and they're looking for very out, out of the box kind of things and so uh and i had an out of box out of, <laughs> out of the box kind of thing and so we and they liked it they liked what we had preliminary studies so that's how they funded funded in fact to it say it's a collaboration between in, between five different laboratories that that particular grant of which I have a considerable amount every one of these people in this in this project each of these labs got got about the same money so there's a group from Harvard that's run by Rudy Tanzi group at Northwestern that's run by Bob Vassar, there's a group at USC run by Betsy Sokolovic, and a, and, a, and a group at WashU uh, run by Dave Holz So those are the groups that are all involved in this microbiome project. I mean, they do their own thing. I started the microbiome story. They all said, look, this is really cool. We're gonna try and do some experiments around those themes and they are pursuing it in different ways. You know, different, because they have different genes, different trends, different models, et cetera. And uh, so that's that's basically uh, what you do though. You have to go out there and, you know, beat the pavement, so to speak. Uh, to get the money to pay the people and run the lab i mean that's bottom line you know of course you know i'm a professor so i also have to profess right so i also have to teach um this year was not fun um well this spring this winter was not fun and last spring was not fun uh because it was all on zoom but uh uh, it's you know that's a very different s- situation, but in the fall it's going to go back to normal. Everybody's so they're making sure they're best vaccinated, and you know all the students can't come to camp. Nobody can come to campus without well, being vaccinated, so that's just the way it's going to be. And uh, so we'll get back to you know some sort of normality. But the thing is that I have to do a lot of things, and then I have all these administrative tasks and everything. So yeah, it's challenging. But the thing is that you got to keep your. Uh, uh, you got to keep a foot on the pedal, so to speak you know you can't you you can't get lazy once you get lazy and think oh yeah you know i figured it out and, or, or i i just don't want to do this anymore you know you're you're wasting everybody's time so for me it's just about work i mean that's i always learned that since, i mean I, I i was born in india and um came this country when i was uh, 12 years old and you know, my parents who were both teachers, they said, it's all about academics, right? You have two teachers, family, their, fam- their, their parents were also doctors and teachers, and it's all about education and, and working hard, and, and that's how you get move forward.
1: What would you say, as your time as both a professor and a scientist, um, what has been your most rewarding experience?
0: Um, I think, you know, so you make breakthroughs very infrequently, (laughs) you know, when you use data, you go, oh my God, I can't believe it's like, it's such an amazing result, you know? Um, and so that happens very infrequently, uh, in science. So you, it's, 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 you have to be patient. I think that's probably the one thing that keeps me going is, is patience. I mean I'm patient I'm impatient with the people who work with me because I'm going like, come on, like what's what's going on? And you know, yeah, no do not know, But I have no no preconceived notions of how things should be working. But when something comes out at you and it blows you away, you go, Wow, there's something there, like this microbiome thing. Just like or like the exercise thing. You know, back in back when I first started, um, I got results. I was basically myself and a technician uh, when I first started in this Alzheimer's world, and I was doing these experiments that nobody else in the entire world was doing. And, but it was it was a central question at that time in this field. It was a central question. I had the technologies or the techniques and the you know the expertise. Other people in the field didn't because they were all neurologists and pathologists. They weren't trained like I was trained. And I get this, I see, you know, I see this result of this experiment and I go, got it. And it was like one of those aha moments. And that was my first paper in science.
1: Wow. So you really are a pioneer in this field. Yeah. Yeah. Zoning out from your research and experiences in particular, what would you say are some of the biggest successes and challenges that the field of Alzheimer's research is facing? And do you have hope that we will be able to have a cure for Alzheimer's in our lifetime?
0: Okay, well, two brilliant questions as well uh, as I expected. So, uh, so there are so the challenge, so the biggest challenge for Alzheimer's disease. Is, um, and probably, and I'm sure your audience is listening, who is listening, also has seen in the newspapers for the last 20 years, 15 years, failed trial after failed trial after failed trial. And the problem, you know, the question is, so, you know, so is it the strategy that was wrong? Is the drug wrong? Uh, in you know, some cases, totally wrong, but in many cases, we didn't really know. The problem is that we, what we have learned over the last 15 years or so is that the disease begins 15 to 20 years before you show clinical, clinical features, Right. and the pathology is already being, is already starting back then, like 15, 20 years ago. So. The people who've been enrolled in all the clinical trials for the last, say 10 years, 15 years, they're people who have Alzheimer's. Okay. They're, they, I mean, they have some very early signs or some moderate signs or even later latest signs of dementia. Well, the problem is that once you get to those stages, the horse is out of the barn. There's nothing you can do about it. You can't reverse the process. There's just absolutely no way to reverse. It. So, What you need to do is tackle the problem before the earliest signs. The question is, what are the earliest signs? And the earliest signs have to be biological, right? They can't be just like, I'm going to give you a questionnaire and this and that. It's not that. It has to be biological. You have to be able to do uh, uh, blood testing, testing of the cerebrospinal fluid, which is the, 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 the fluid that bathes the brain and ask about specific types of biological proteins that are important in the processes which are involved in the
1: generation. And ask those questions early on and by using,
0: and now we have imaging, right? So imaging of these plaques and tangles, the the two major pathologies in the human disease, there are actually small molecules which which are radioactive They get in the brain. You can see them on a a PET scan. So using those kind of criteria, you can try to go and find people who are at the very early stage of disease and then try the drugs. That's the biggest challenge of of the field is how do you enroll people at the early stage of disease? Who's going to enroll, right? Right. Um, Most people who are at very early stages of, of dementia or have some memory impairments, they're totally in denial I'm, no, i just i left my keys over i i i know where they are yeah okay denial is not so the denial keeps going for a longer period of time and then start turning back get over you know you, you, you're over the threshold so that's a big challenge is identifying people at the early stage of disease so these clinical trials which i i think that the idea the mechanisms of we don't completely understand, but there is some reality in what's going on with Philip Trout. It's just that they don't have the patience to show that there's some, there's going to be success. Okay. The bigger question is that let's just say they had some success in these people who have very early onset. Oh, or very early stage of, of, of sort of clinical biological changes. Can you now put this onto the whole population? Would you want to take drugs for the rest of your life? I mean, taking a drugs i mean my, my mother died of kidney failure because she had i she took she took before her inflammation and just killed her kidneys right but she did it for 30 years not good now that's the problem with uh, taking drugs and if you're 55 60 years old you want to start going on a drug for the rest of your life i wouldn't do it right so there are so there are a lot of confounding facts so that's a huge challenge is it going to be a cure? No. Because as I said, it starts 20 years before. So it's like, what do you it's not something you can put on a, on a, in a vitamin pill or have in, at, at breakfast, you know, when you're a kid. Right. We, don't, about, we don't even know how the brain works normally, much less when it starts going down, right? And we know for 20 years, it's not going down. And you 20 years, when all that pathology builds up to a certain sort of critical mass, that finally your brain says, I'm shut down.
1: specific advice for students who are looking to get involved in Alzheimer's research or uh, more broadly a career in the sciences and how can we best prepare ourselves to think like a scientist and conduct impactful research later in life?
0: Uh, you just have to reach out. You just have to, you know, so I've had uh, undergraduates in my lab uh, this past summer, some I mean, almost like for every summer for the last several years. And there are students from around Chicago who uh, write to me and say, I'm really interested in what the studying about the brain. I'm, I want to come and uh, be a volunteer. So they come and volunteer for two or three months. And then uh, during the year, they come a couple of days a week. Let's do it. I mean, that's, you know, you know, you know, if you really are interested in it, you can just see what it's like being a scientist, a research scientist in a laboratory. And in some cases where you ha- you can work with a clinician who is a, a neurologist, a psychiatrist or, you know, or, or, or seeing patients, uh, that's just get involved. I mean, it's very simple. <laughs> it's, it's a it's a it's a very simple answer. Just call your, you know, call, call your local congressman.
1: Um, yeah, that. That makes a lot of sense. I think that reaching out and just putting yourself out there—it doesn't—it doesn't doesn't hurt,
0: right? right? We're gonna say, "Well, I'm sorry, I don't have any spots available." I'm happy to talk to you. Great, or you know, I could suggest somebody else who might be interested. Just start a conversation. I mean, unless you put your foot in the door, you you ain't gonna go anywhere.